Hello and welcome to Genetics Unzipped, the Genetics Society podcast with me, Dr. Kat Arney. 35 years ago this month, a small team of scientists at the University of Leicester published a paper that changed the world. We take a look at the story of genetic fingerprinting and some of the very first ways that this game-changing technique was put to work. Just a quick message before we get started. As I'm recording this episode, the UK is grappling with the COVID-19 coronavirus pandemic. Schools are closed, pubs and restaurants are shut, and it feels like we are just waiting for that wave to hit. I'm hugely grateful to live in a country with a national health service, staffed by incredible, dedicated heroes, and I can only hope it isn't stretched too far past its breaking point. It's going to be a tough few months for us all, and we need scientific and public health experts more than ever before. However, this podcast, and hopefully this podcaster and her team, is going to be a coronavirus-free zone. We're planning on sticking to our regular schedule, and we've got a whole bunch of excellent shows lined up over the coming months. Please do share a link to our website, geneticsunzip.com, for our extensive back catalogue. You can share it with friends, family and school or university students who are looking for some science-minded escapades into the world of genes, genomes and DNA. We're also on Twitter, at geneticsunzip. The account is run by First Create the Media's social media superstar, Tabitha, so please do drop by for a chat and help keep her spirits up while we're all stuck at home just staring at the news. I know that we have listeners all over the world, so wherever you are, I do hope that you and your loved ones stay safe and well. Look after each other, and please, wash your hands. On the 7th of March 1985, a paper was published in the scientific journal Nature that changed the world. Written by a team of three scientists at the University of Leicester, Alec Jeffries, Victoria Wilson and Swile Thine, the title hypervariable mini-satellite regions in human DNA and the jargon-filled results, talking about dispersed tandem repeats and allelic variations, don't really provide much of a clue unless you know what you're looking at. But it's this last sentence of the abstract that's the real giveaway. A probe based on a tandem repeat of the core sequence can detect many highly variable loci simultaneously and can provide an individual-specific DNA fingerprint of general use in human genetic analysis. So, what did this team do? What did it mean? And what happened next? (music) Professor Sir Alec Jeffries has always had the spirit of science and invention running in his DNA, if you believe in that kind of genetics. His grandfather was an engineer and a prolific inventor who held many patents. One of them was for a method of creating photorealistic sculptures where a customer could come into his shop, have a few photos taken and then come back the next day to pick up a picture-perfect statuette of their face long before 3D printing was even an inkling of an idea. Prime Minister Neville Chamberlain even counted among the happy clientele. Grandpa Jeffrey's inventiveness rubbed off on his son, and young Alec grew up in a household full of his dad's gadgets and gimmicks. And it was his dad who bought Alec his first microscope and chemistry set, essential tools for any budding scientist. Unfortunately, this enthusiasm for chemistry outweighed Alec's sense of health and safety, 
resulting in the detonation of his aunt's apple tree and some nasty acid burns that still leave their scars today. Oops. You learn science very fast that way, but it was quite fun, said Jeffries in an interview in 2006. Fortunately, this explosive incident didn't put young Alec off science at all. He ended up at Oxford University for a degree in biochemistry and a PhD in human genetics. And from there, he went to a lab in Amsterdam, where he started working with some of the early tools that researchers were developing to study DNA. In 1977, the year that Fred Sanger invented his eponymous DNA sequencing technique, Jeffries arrived in Leicester, complete with suitably 70s hair and beard, taking up the position of lecturer in the Department of Genetics. Rather than focusing on investigating how information was stored within the sequence of DNA, he decided to take a different tack, instead looking at how DNA varied between people so he could trace how different versions of genes linked to traits and diseases were inherited down the generations. He and his colleagues started a systematic survey of one section of the human genome, trying to spot how it differed between individuals. But he soon realised that this task was a lot tougher than he first imagined. The variations between people were very hard to detect with the tools at the time, and they weren't particularly informative. Surely, he figured, there must be other regions in the genome that were more variable and easier to work on. In the summer of 1984, Jeffries and his team started working on a technique to detect so-called mini-satellites, short, stuttering sequences of DNA that are repeated over and over at certain places in the genome, like the same word repeated again, again, at multiple points within a book. But while the word is the same between all humans, the number of times it gets repeated in various locations throughout the genome is highly variable. Their method for looking at mini-satellites worked like this. First, extract DNA from cells and chop it into small bits using an enzyme that cuts DNA at specific sequences around the mini-satellite clusters. Run it all through a large slab of special science jelly, which separates all the fragments by size, from the largest to the smallest. Then you stick all that DNA onto a piece of glorified paper, exactly preserving that pattern of fragments. Next, wash it with radioactively labelled mini-satellite DNA, slap a piece of X-ray film on top and leave it for a few days to see what you've got. On the morning of the 10th of September, 1984, at 9.05am, Jeffries developed the X-ray film from his latest experiment. As well as looking at DNA samples from related humans, he'd also included a few animal species too, just for kicks really. What he saw on that pale blue film, covered with rows of fuzzy black blobs and lines, was absolutely astounding. According to a 2009 interview in The Guardian, his first reaction was, God, what a mess. Then I stared a bit longer, and the penny dropped. He realised that the DNA from each species had its own particular pattern of mini-satellites, exactly like a personal barcode. Not only that, but each human had its own unique pattern. For example, I might have 30 copies in one location, while you have 25, and someone else has 18. In another place of the genome, I've got 17, you have 36, and the third person has 40. All of these will generate a unique pattern of DNA fragments with different lengths. 
even more importantly, he saw that an individual person's pattern was a composite, containing elements of each of their parents' mini-satellite patterns, and could be used to identify relatives from the same family. This was something he figured out thanks to DNA samples donated by his lab technician and her mum and dad. Without intending to, Jeffries had created the world's first genetic fingerprint, as he and his team soon came to describe it. He says, It was an absolute eureka moment. It was a blinding flash. In five golden minutes, my research career went whizzing off in a completely new direction. Not bad for a completely accidental discovery, or as Jeffrey's grandson Ewan described it in a school project, My granddad was messing about in his lab one day when he discovered genetic fingerprinting. Jeffries immediately called his team together to start brainstorming ideas for how to use their new profiling technique. Paternity testing was a very obvious one, as revealed by that very first experiment. But there were other applications too. What about crime scenes? Would it be possible to get enough DNA from bloodstains or other biological remnants left at the scene of a crime to identify a perpetrator? Or even to track down the identity of an unknown victim? And it was Jeffrey's wife, Sue, who suggested that this newfangled fingerprinting technique might be a way of reuniting families separated by immigration disputes. The Leicester team published their paper describing their technique in March 1985. It got a fair bit of pickup in the media, and almost immediately the university switchboard was jammed with calls from people desperate to use DNA fingerprinting to solve their problems. Within a month, Jeffries and his team had taken on and solved their first case, the Ghana immigration dispute, which we'll come to a bit later. By mid-1985, they'd taken on their first paternity case, kick-starting an industry that is still keeping dubious daytime TV shows fed with drama to this day. This was also the first time that DNA fingerprinting was used in a court of law, in this case in a magistrate's court, signalling that the legal profession was going to have to embark on a pretty steep learning curve to get to grips with all this genetic stuff. By 1987, the first DNA profiling company, Cellmark, was set up by licensing Jeffrey's technology from the university. In the same year came the first criminal case, when a combination of DNA evidence and outstanding police work was used to solve the murders of two Leicestershire schoolgirls, Linda Mann and Dawn Ashworth, who I'll talk about later on. This case was the launchpad for forensic genetics, and within a year, DNA profiling was being used by police forces worldwide. By the early 1990s, the techniques for DNA profiling took a leap forward with the invention of the polymerase chain reaction, or PCR. Exactly how this works, and the curious drug-fuelled story behind its discovery, is a topic for a future episode. But basically, it's a kind of photocopier for DNA, allowing scientists to see how many copies of each mini-satellite are present at various locations in the genome in a matter of hours, rather than the days or weeks required for Jeffrey's original technique. PCR-based fingerprinting also needed far smaller amounts of DNA to get a decent profile making it feasible for use in situations like crime scene investigations, where only tiny samples could be gathered. And it's not just human crimes that can be solved with DNA fingerprints. 
When I heard him speak at a recent event in Leicester celebrating the 35th anniversary of his seminal paper, Jeffries told the story of a man in the UK who had an adult male and female golden eagle, both of which he was licensed to keep. But he also had three fluffy little eaglets. And as everyone knew, it was impossible to breed golden eagles in captivity, so he must have stolen them from the wild. This is a serious criminal offence, warranting a big fine and potentially a prison sentence. Jeffrey's lab set about doing the world's first golden eagle paternity test. They found out that the birds were all in fact one family group. And in an instant, the man went from a potential wildlife criminal to a wildlife hero as the first person ever to breed these majestic birds in captivity. Wildlife crime might seem low down on the list of international criminal priorities, but it actually has huge financial and environmental impact globally. This is particularly pressing right now, given that illegal wildlife trafficking increases the chances of transmission of novel pathogens, like viruses, from animals to humans. There are plenty of uses for genetic fingerprinting in conservation too, whether that's figuring out the family relationships of wild or captive animals to keep an eye on inbreeding, or just monitoring and studying wild populations by looking at the traces of DNA they leave behind in their droppings. The applications of genetic fingerprinting are almost endless. Today it's used in agriculture, medicine, biodiversity research and much, much more. DNA profiling has confirmed the identities of the remains of the great and the not-so-great, from the murdered Russian Romanov dynasty to the infamous Nazi Josef Mengele. Jeffrey's Leicester colleague Churi King also confirmed that the skeleton in a local car park was likely to be King Richard III. And you can hear more about that story in episode 7 of our recent mini-series, New Light on Old Britons. Genetic fingerprinting has solved horrific crimes and exonerated the innocent. It was used to confirm that Dolly the sheep was truly a clone, and it's being put to work proving the pedigree, or otherwise, of prize puppies and other valuable animals. There are even poo printing services that use DNA profiling to identify dogs with irresponsible owners who persistently fail to scoop that poop. Unsurprisingly, Jeffries has received many honours and awards all over the world. But the strangest recognition so far is from Sir Alexander Fleming College, a British school in Trujillo, Peru, which has named one of its houses after him, complete with DNA-based headbands. It's not exactly a Nobel Prize, but it's certainly an original way to celebrate the inventor behind one of the most important and powerful techniques in modern genetics. Go, Jeffries! most often associate genetic fingerprinting with forensics or paternity testing, the first case that was solved using the DNA profiling technique invented by Jeffries involved an immigration dispute. A month after he and his team had published their Nature paper, Jeffries received a letter from London-based lawyer Shiona York. She'd seen a story about genetic fingerprinting in the paper and wondered if it could help settle a tricky case she was fighting on behalf of a family originally from Ghana. Andrew, 
a 13-year-old boy who'd been born in Britain, had been stopped at Heathrow Airport coming back into the UK after a trip back to see his father in Ghana, as immigration officials thought that his passport had been tampered with or forged. To make matters worse, Andrew referred to Christiana Saba, the woman who was supposedly his mother, as auntie, a common habit in his culture, even though she was genuinely his mum. The officials refused to believe that Andrew truly was her son and thought that he was a cousin trying to illegally sneak into the UK. At the time, there were some basic genetic tests that could tell whether people were broadly related to the same family, but they couldn't figure out parent-child relationships. And to make things even more complicated, it wasn't clear who the boy's real father actually was. By the time York wrote to Jeffreys, the situation was dire. After two years of protracted legal arguments, the family was distraught and there seemed to be no way to persuade the Home Office to drop the case. As a last-ditch effort, Jeffreys produced DNA fingerprints from Andrew, his mother and three other children that were definitely hers, David, Joyce and Diana. The results were completely convincing. The boy was undeniably his mother's child. York presented the data to the Home Office Immigration Tribunal, which backed down immediately. It was two years of angst, just wiped away in two minutes, as Andrew's brother, Dr David Guillemer, describes it. In fact, the experience of being involved in the first DNA fingerprinting case inspired David to take up science and pursue a degree in applied chemistry at the University of Leicester. The family's joyful reunion made national headlines and opened the floodgates for many more claims from separated families. The Home Office also announced that it wouldn't fight any future immigration cases where there was DNA evidence proving parentage. It also netted Jeffries and his team another nature paper, further cementing the scientific reputation of this new technique. And from there, it wasn't long until it would be needed to bring justice to a family in an even more desperate situation. You're listening to Genetics Unzipped, the Genetics Society podcast. Find us online at geneticsunzip.com and on Twitter at Genetics Unzip. Linda Mann was a summer baby, born in July, who grew into a clever and determined teenager. She loved colours and fashion, and she enjoyed sketching outfits. One November night in 1983, the 15-year-old schoolgirl took a shortcut on the way home from her babysitting job back to her parents' house in the Leicestershire village of Narborough. But she never arrived. Her body was found the next day on a deserted footpath. She'd been brutally beaten, raped and strangled. Although police used the best techniques available at the time to create a biological profile of the killer from DNA left at the scene of the crime, namely his blood type and which versions of certain enzymes he had, it could only narrow down the field of suspects to around 10% of all males. With no other clues to go on, the detectives were stumped and the case remained unsolved. Then came the next one. Dawn Ashworth was a loving daughter and big sister who lived in the neighbouring village of Enderby. 
She was kind and sensible for her 15 years and always bought her mum a bunch of flowers with the money from her Saturday job. One evening late in July 1986, she went over to visit a friend's house, but never arrived. Two days later, she was found dead in local woodland, killed in the same way as Linda after a considerable fight for her life. Again, biological testing showed the same profile as the previous attacker, strongly suggesting it was the same person. But who was he? At this point, a local teenager, 17-year-old Richard Buckland, came forward and confessed to Dawn's murder. But he didn't know anything about Linda's death, despite the clear connections between the two. Something didn't add up. Crucially, in between the two cases... Alec Jeffries and his team at the University of Leicester had invented the technique that would solve the mystery, taking the 10% chance of getting a match right down to one in a million or more. And when the lead detective on the case, David Baker, spotted an article about Jeffries' genetic fingerprinting in the local paper, he got in touch straight away. First of all, Jeffries' team compared the DNA sample recovered from Linda's body with Buckland's and found no match. Next, Baker sent him the sample left at the scene of Dawn's murder. And again, they found no match with Buckland, but a perfect match with Linda's attacker. This confirmed that both the cases were linked, that Buckland wasn't the perpetrator of either of them, and that Leicestershire police had a serial killer on the loose. The news rocked the already frightened, tight-knit local communities, who had to face the fact that the murderer probably walked among them. The police took drastic action that seems almost unlikely by today's standards, asking all the men who had lived or worked in the area in recent years to come forward for DNA profiling. More than 5,000 blood or saliva samples were collected and tested over a period of several months, but none of them matched the genetic fingerprint of the killer. This wasn't entirely unexpected. Only a fool would deliberately offer themselves up for testing if they were guilty. But the police hoped that their approach would help to flush the killer out. And they were right. The final breakthrough didn't happen in a research lab, but in the Clarendon pub, just a stone's throw from the university, where a small group of colleagues from a local bakery had gathered on the 1st of August 1987. One of them, Ian Kelly, revealed that he'd been asked to stand in and take the police DNA test for another bakery worker who'd given him cash and a fake passport. This story seemed very suspicious to a woman listening in on the group. This evasive colleague was known for his dubious behaviour around women, and so she decided to take her concerns to the police. Her decision was made a lot easier thanks to local fashion magnate George Davis, the first chief executive of the next chain, who put up a hefty reward for information leading to the killer's capture. The police began to investigate and soon realised that they had their man. When the suspect was finally arrested on the 19th of September, genetic fingerprinting told the clear truth. This was the person responsible for the deaths of both girls. However, this DNA evidence wasn't actually needed in court, as the man pled guilty to his crimes anyway. He was sentenced to life in prison with a minimum term of 30 years. The Enderby case was a dramatic proof of the power of genetic fingerprinting, not only proving the innocence of a key suspect, but also closing the net on the true killer, and it captured the nation's attention. 
Importantly, it put a highly dangerous man behind bars who, according to those involved in the case, would have almost certainly killed again. As well as catching criminals, genetic fingerprinting has also been used to exonerate the innocent. In 1993, the first person on death row in the US was released after being proved innocent by DNA testing. Kirk Bloodsworth had been in prison for nine years following his conviction for the rape and murder of nine-year-old Dawn Hamilton in Maryland. Incredibly, genetic testing then revealed that the true killer was a man from the same penitentiary, and the two had even trained together in the prison gym. Today, Jeffrey's estimates that in excess of 100 million people around the world are on some kind of DNA database, although it's hard to estimate numbers from countries like China. Some countries are even mandating DNA profiling for all their citizens. And there are also plenty of people voluntarily putting their own DNA data out into the world through direct-to-consumer genetic testing services. While this can be a fun way of finding long-lost relatives, it's also turning into an impressive policing tool, as proved by the case of the Golden State Killer in 2018, where police managed to catch the perpetrator of a series of rapes and murders by triangulating information from GEDmatch. That's a free online genetic database where millions of people have uploaded their genetic profile in the hope of linking together branches of their family tree. Since then, a number of other crimes have been solved using this kind of information, and a study in 2018 estimated that at least 60% of white Americans could be identified using the genetic information that's already out there, even if they themselves have never provided their own DNA. That number is only likely to have risen in recent years, despite growing concerns about personal genetic privacy. Finally, this isn't a true crime podcast but there are plenty of shows out there that are obsessed with killers and their capture, often through forensic evidence like DNA fingerprinting. While the hunt may be thrilling and the gruesome horror of their crimes chilling, to the point of inadvertently glorifying the perpetrators, we must never forget that the most important people in all these cases are the victims and their families. At the recent event celebrating 35 years since the publication of Jeffrey's paper, the President and Vice-Chancellor of the University of Leicester, Nishan Kanagaraja, announced a permanent PhD scholarship in the genetics department in the names of Dawn Ashworth and Linda Mann. It's a fitting way to honour their memory and their unwilling role in the history of this game-changing technology. Let their names live on and may they rest in peace. Thanks to Professor Churi King from the University of Leicester for organising the event celebrating the anniversary of the first fingerprinting paper and for inviting me along. Also thanks to the people who shared their stories on the stage. Linda Mann's mother, Kath Eastwood, Barbara Ashworth, the mother of Dawn, retired Chief Superintendent David Baker, who led the Enderby murder case, and Andrew's brother, Dr David Guillema. That's all for now. Next time, we'll be reporting back from the recent Festival of Genomics, hearing from patients who've chosen to get involved in genomics research and why it's so important. For more information about this podcast, including show notes, transcripts, links, references, music credits and everything else, just head over to geneticsunzip.com. You can also find us on Twitter, at geneticsunzip. And please do take a moment to rate and review us on Apple Podcasts. It really does make a difference and it helps more people discover the show. Oh, my God.
Genetics Unzipped is written and presented by me, Kat Arney, and it's produced by First Create the Media for the Genetic Society, one of the oldest learned societies in the world dedicated to supporting and promoting the research, teaching and application of genetics. You can find out more and apply to join at genetics.org.uk. Our theme music was composed by Dan Pollard, our logo was designed by James Mayle, and audio production is by Hannah Varrell. Thanks for listening, and until next time, goodbye. Bye.